Amen. Let's uh, just thank the band for leading us in worship. But if that would be fantastic. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the book of James, chapter 4. We're in a series entitled James. And uh, we're going to look at verse, at chapter 3, rather, verses 13 through 18. So if you're there, you feel free to read along as I read aloud from the text. It reads, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then it's peace-loving, gentle, compliant. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. We're looking at the idea of wisdom today, a word that you are more than likely familiar with. However, when we look at wisdom in the Bible, it's a different concept than even what many of us think of when we consider people in our lives who we would say that's a wise person. Because for far too often, for those of us who, when we deal with people every day, dealing with someone who is wise means that they have lots of practical, helpful knowledge for us as to how to interact with our day-to-day circumstances. And while the Bible does address that in a book called Proverbs, we also see that the wisdom that comes to us from God is much more than that. Wisdom that we think of is the wisdom that I uh, remember from my childhood. I remember we were playing hide-and-seek at my house. My mother had taken all of our toys away, and we had to figure out something to do to entertain ourselves because we did not have smart TVs, and I was hiding in the home. I decided to hide in our dryer. We had a very large dryer, and while I hid in the dryer, I shut the door behind me. Shutting the door behind me, I got stuck in the dryer. It's a terrible thing for all the children in the room who may be listening. Don't ever do that. And as I'm in this dryer, I begin to tumble back and forth, shaking the dryer like a wet blanket or a pair of sneakers. And eventually my dad opens the dryer door and said, Baby, because my dad called me baby until his dying day, he said, Baby, you don't need to hide in a dryer like that. And then he said to me what I considered the wisest thing I'd ever heard in my six to seven years of life. He said, What if someone walked by and turned that dryer on? And I thought, He's so smart. That's absolutely brilliant. I was older than I like to admit when I realized no one randomly walks by and just turns dryers on. You walk by and you see it and you think, oh, what should that fluff cycle? When we look at wisdom in the scriptures, we're seeing that it's more than that. It's, it's, it's deeper. It's, it's God's wisdom. And actually, as we look through the Bible, we see it verbalized in multiple ways. We see the idea of God's wisdom. We see the idea of God's way. We see God's, God's yoke. That's language that Jesus uses. And all of these are set alongside of and in contrast to the idea of the world's wisdom, the, the world's way, the, the world's yoke. So when the writer of the book of James, named James, asks this question in verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? We, as people who are spending time in the Bible, have to consider what he's told us earlier. 
Who, is, who among you is wise and is understanding? Because in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers. So he asked this question, and he is making a point to those who are listening to him that those who would consider themselves to be wise are probably not. Can you imagine if I were to ask that? Who among us is wise and understanding? Everyone puts their hand up. You have disqualified yourself from the point that James is attempting to make. And as he deals with this church, he's got this, this issue throughout his dealing where you have a group of leaders who feel that due to what they know, everyone else is beneath them and should react and respond accordingly. It's the idea of them leading with what they know and them having nothing to show that goes alongside of that. These leaders in the church were satisfied for people to feel lesser. And if we're not careful as followers of Jesus in 2019, we can find ourselves in the same trap. We will sing a song and, and the lyric may not line up with where we land theologically because of the podcast that we listen to or, or the books that we half-heartedly read. So we'll hear something and we will address that for those who are sitting in front of us. We will point out the fault and the flaw of that. Even though it's just a very slight difference from what we actually understand in, the full, in regard to the fullness of what the Bible teaches. You have the idea of making people feel lesser. So James is saying to them, rather than display wisdom by what you say, I want you to show wisdom by not only what you say, but how you live among people. I want you to stand for truth in the right way. I want you to make sure that if you're going to be offensive, it's because of the gospel and not because you're a jerk. And let's just be completely honest this morning. For many of us, as followers of Jesus, we feel that we're persecuted at times for righteousness' sake, when in actuality, we just behave like jerks. And God has called... Merry Christmas. And God has called... Happy Advent. And God has called us to something that is greater than that, bigger than that, larger than that. So if we're going to offend, let's offend with the gospel, the message of Jesus, Christ crucified, resurrected as the hope of the world. Stand for truth in the right way. Uh, we had a dodgeball tournament as an outreach for our children's ministry a few months ago. It was September, and various members of our church uh, took hold of that. The children's ministry crew, they ran with it. One member in particular uh, of the children's ministry team, her name is Ashley Parker, and Ashley uh, begins to have an interaction with a girl that she exercises with. Ashley goes to CrossFit. I'm a member of CrossFit. Some of you are like, you are? Yes, I go. I order pizza. It's delivered there. And I noticed that Ashley was inviting this lady to bring her children to play dodgeball with us who is not a Christian. And when I say she's not a Christian, she's not a Christian in the southern cultural sense that many of us may line up with Christianity. She's not a Christian in the complete sense in that she doesn't use any, use, uses. She does not use any of the language that you will use. She considers herself to be a liberal atheist. And I noticed that Ashley kept asking her to bring her kid to this, but I've watched them interact beyond this. And Ashley uh, dealt with this woman in the most gracious, God-honoring way. And whenever the woman has points of 
of concern with Christianity, Ashley is patient with her. Ashley loves her. Ashley is for her. And I noticed that this mom posted about Ashley's invitation for her children to come play dodgeball on her social media feed. And here's what she said, this mother. And I asked her permission, and I did not ask Ashley's, but we'll go with it. Uh, My friend says, I... I'm a liberal atheist living in a small town that I never fit into. Shout out. That's what the kids say when they're saying loud things. To my, or their parents. The kids' parents say it. Shout out to my very conservative, very Christian, (laughs) two points, very Christian, friend who always makes me laugh at our differences, always makes me feel welcome, and never makes me feel other. If every Christian loved and lived the way that you do, I might never have questioned my faith in the first place. You are the real thing. I might not believe in what you believe. I might might not agree with you on everything, but I respect you. Thank you. So I noticed this. She posts a picture of their text message interaction. And just to abbreviate... She's asking, is there going to be anything super Christian about this? Yes, it's super Christian. We're a church. That's what we do. We do super Christian things. And actually, there will be a small devotion. And the mother said about her daughter, she has to grow up and make her own decisions. And Ashley's reply was priceless. She said, I mean, it's better than being a Republican. And I just thought, that's so good. That's so good. Lead with a hammer. Verse 14. So, so Ashley deals with her in this gracious, God-honoring way. And James is dealing with the leaders in his church, and he's saying some of you are in leadership positions, and you don't realize that for you to lead is really about who you follow. We follow Jesus. And James says they're missing that. Verse 14, If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Bitter envy or bitter jealousy is what the ESV reads. It means you cannot stand for someone else to have influence. That shouldn't be present in followers of Jesus. In the church that James addresses, in the church that I'm privileged to pastor, there should not be selfish ambition among you. It's... That's a kissing cousin of of political ambition. We should not be trying to push ourselves to the forefront, but we should be hoping that where we are and while we're there is, is for the sake of God being honored, God being glorified, God being made much of. J.I. Packer says this about wisdom. Wisdom is where you simply try and see and do the right things in the situation that presents itself. And the question that I would ask us as we consider what it means for us to follow Jesus is, do we realize that every day and every decision that we make, we have to ask ourselves, will this decision declare the kingdom of God or impair someone's perception of the kingdom of God? Will this decision impair someone's view of the kingdom of God or am I declaring that God's kingdom matters, that God's kingdom is ultimate? Verse 15, such wisdom, this earthly wisdom, full of bitterness, selfish ambition, this wisdom that tries to elevate yourself to the discredit and discomfort of others, this wisdom, this world's wisdom is earthly. It is unspiritual and it is demonic. 
In high school, my Spanish teacher, her name was Beatrice Ingram. She called me Diablito. That means little devil. And if you're calling someone devil, I don't know a lot about Greek translations. It's pretty much a bad thing. So this guy, James, as he writes to this church, is saying any type of any type of wisdom that communicates these earthly, unspiritual, demonic things is against God. Well, we have to break those words down, wicka wicka, to really understand what the writer of the book of James is saying here. What does it mean for something to be earthly? For you to have a wisdom that is earthly, it means that you have a, an earthly understanding. The natural order is ultimate. We would say, we would call it Darwinism, or the idea that only the strong survive. Unspiritual. This is animalistic. It's one overpowering another. It's void of the supernatural aspect of God. Demonic. It's void of the purity of God. Because God wants our best, and, want, and, and any this type of false wisdom, this demonic wisdom, it seeks out our worst. So if your system runs like the world system, we're missing the new way that James has experienced when he heard Jesus teach. Now, if you're unfamiliar, James is the half-brother of Jesus, but did not come to faith in Jesus until after the resurrection. Because Jesus had been saying things that were completely unique and completely different to everything that they understood as to how the world worked. And as he listened to his brother preach and teach, he would almost roll his eyes as I imagine the, the visual. Because all of these things don't seem to work. There's no power behind this as someone who does not believe, James may say. But at the resurrection... We see this complete transfer, that this, is a, that this story of Jesus is a story worth telling. That this message of Jesus is a message of hope in a hopeless place. That we look and we see and we know the truth of who God is and how God has represented himself in the person of Jesus. And we believe that what God offers us is a true wisdom, a true way, a true yoke. When we look at the disciples, everything that they, they understood about the kingdom was defined by the nation of Rome. That's why we have questions by one, two, where they're asking Jesus, and when you establish your kingdom, because I've been watching the kingdom of Rome, and they have their Caesars, and they have their leaders, and their leaders have people who are sub-leaders. When you establish your kingdom, I want to be on your right and on your left like that. Many of them have hitched their wagon to the camel of Jesus trying to ride their way into the kingdom. And they're trying to get in based on their earthly, conventional wisdom. Their earthly, conventional understanding of what the kingdom is. An earthly, unspiritual, demonic understanding of the kingdom. Jesus talks about this when you get to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11 where he has just dealt with a young man who has tried to get into heaven based upon his merit. He comes to Jesus and says to him, Jesus, or teacher rather, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to get in? Jesus says, you've heard the commandments. Yes, and I've kept every one. Well, go get rid of everything you have, Jesus says. The young man leaves, the Bible says, because he had great wealth. 
Jesus said to his disciples following this interaction about the kingdom of God that he has come to establish, that he is making obvious to the world around him. Truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So all of these disciples are turning their attention and tuning their mind's eye to Jesus saying this because their world, the world that James lived in a very similar situation, has said to them, those who are in powerful positions are blessed by God. Those who are in the highest places, God has put them there and because they matter more. And their question to Jesus is this, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus looks at them and said, with, the man, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus hears from Peter, we have left everything and followed you, so what will there be for us? And Jesus tells them about the renewal of all things. And how when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones and you will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. But this whole message of Jesus is about this countercultural, upside-down kingdom that is completely different than the world in which we live. Jesus, or James says to us in verse 16, For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. Again, coming out of the idea of political power and an attempt to take control for the sake of having control. Conventional wisdom says so many things to us. The idea of practical wisdom. The idea of what you do and why you should do it. We recently opened a place in Lake Jackson called Urban Air. You've probably seen it. If you're unfamiliar because you've not wanted to go anywhere where you could catch the flu... Uh, Urban Air is a trampoline jump park. It's in the mall. And uh, when you go in the door, they begin to give you explanations as to what needs to take place in there. And they will let you know about how you need to be careful when you do flips. And I stopped her right there and I said, Ma'am, you don't have to worry about me doing any flips. I'm just here to make sure my kids don't die. And I think they're paying you for that. So we're interacting about this. But as there was a time where Hope and myself and some friends of ours had gone to a place very much like Urban Air. And we've been given the exact same speech, the same spiel. But at the close of our time there... Uh, everyone begins to have a conversation as to if they can still do a flip. Uh, one girl, she was pregnant, and she said, I can't do a flip, I'm pregnant. Her husband said he could not do a flip because his wife was pregnant. I, I said, I can't do a flip because I'm big. My wife, she decides that she's going to do a flip. Now, you may not know Hope. She's one of the most determined people on earth. She's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. She is the best of us. And when she sets her mind to something, she's going to do whatever she has set her mind to do. And I watched and I stood and, and my wife just flipped like she was a six-year-old. But as a husband, I thought, well, that's embarrassing for me. If she can do it, I can do it. Now, friends, every bit of conventional wisdom should let you know that that does not need to be what takes place at the mall that day. I did a flip, and everything in my body locked up. I landed, 
but I did not stick the landing, unlike one of Mary Lou Retton or Dominic Dawes or Simone Bile, any of them, I just stood there and thought to myself, I have been told this is the worst thing to do. When you look at this text, you're, you're looking at the idea of conventional wisdom and how it plays out and how it works, and we're seeing what God would say to us in regard to the conventional direction that the world has been given forever. The conventional direction that the world believes that they should follow. And this conventional understanding of who God is begins to play out in your everyday. And their practical understanding of God and the directives you're giving because of this false God really works like this. It's a generally accepted practice or belief. And here's what they believed about God if they missed Jesus. And friends, in this room right now, this may be what you believe about God if you're missing Jesus. And if you're a believer in this room, there is a possibility that you are believing these falsities about God and you're missing the supernatural aspect of who Jesus is. I needed something supernatural on that trampoline. And here we have these conventional understandings of God. That God is very much like Zeus. He's a lawgiver who is waiting to drop the hammer if we, if we hurt or wrong him. That a person's worth is determined by measuring up to social standards. Am I, do I drive the right thing? Do I wear the right thing? Do I go the right places? Am I part of the right crowd? In conventional wisdom, the idea of, of sinners and outcasts, they are to be avoided and rejected. That identity comes from social tradition. That your background, your status, those things matter. In conventional wisdom, we have the idea of striving to be first. Preserve one's own life above all. The fruit of striving is reward. We have all of these things that the world has told the church that James was dealing with. And we have those things that are being told to the church today. Yet there is a wisdom that comes from above that is very different than that. God's wisdom says that Jesus' alternative wisdom comes from heaven itself. Whereas Zeus is a lawgiver waiting to drop the hammer, our God is gracious and patient. Whereas we look at a world where a person's worth is, is determined by measuring up to social standards, we see that the God who made us and puts life and breath in us, all persons have infinite worth because you were created by God in the image of God. In a world where conventional wisdom says that sinners and outcasts are to be avoided, we have God saying to us with his wisdom, everyone is welcome around the table of the kingdom of God. When a world where identity comes from social tradition, we see as followers of Jesus, our identity comes through the person of Jesus. In a world where everything says you strive to be first, Jesus says the first shall be last, and those who exalt themselves will be emptied. When we look, look at conventional wisdom again, you preserve one's own life above everything. And Jesus says the path of dying to self and being re reborn leads to life abundant. In a world that says the fruit of striving is reward, we see Jesus saying the fruit of centering in God is compassion. We see that the kingdom of God is different. It is unique and it works in an altar. When you look at your kingdom life right now, which does it look more like? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. It's very easy for us to set up dichotomies and myths. That in our practice, we land in places that are unlike God. The wisdom from above, verse 17, is pure, peace-loving, 
gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering. It is without falsehood or pretense. Think about what the king of Christianity has already told us. Think about the image of James standing and shaking his head and snarling as his brother preaches what we call the Sermon on the Mount. When you read those words from chapter from verse 17 of chapter 3, pure, Jesus said the pure in heart are blessed and they will see God. Peace-loving, Jesus said the peacemakers are blessed for they will be called the sons of God. Gentle, Jesus says the gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. Compliant, the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Full of mercy, the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. Full of good fruit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed for they will be filled. We are led by a king and our king is giving us direction. He's showing us where to go. He's showing us how to get there. He's showing us how to function and why we should function that way. We think of what Jesus says to us in another portion of Matthew where he talks about if you're going to follow me, I want you to know that even in your following, I'm going to be the one who carries and takes care of you. Jesus says, take, up my, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I love that because in verse 8 because these verses point that out the idea of gentleness and lowliness of heart Jesus says this about himself why would we as people who claim to follow him seek a status that is higher than either one of those things and attempt to function in a way that is unlike those you take your yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls, your rest is in me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I'm no farmer, but everything that I read, everything that I've spent time dealing with in regard to this text, when you talk about the yoke, you, you have one animal that basically trains another animal as to how to go. And Jesus is saying here, when you connect yourself to me, I'm going to show you the pace that you should follow. I'm going to show you the steps that you should take. I'm going to show you how to lean into a relationship with, with me. I'm going to show you what you are to be and how you are to be it. It's this daily, consistent practice. It's a different kingdom. It's a different yoke. Because every one of us is yoked to something. All of you, Jesus says, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble and you will find rest. It's a submissive idea. But here's the thing, friends. We miss it every day. All of us are yoked to something. You are allowing something to set your pace. You are allowing something to show you the way. What is it? Who is it? Where are you finding it? Dallas Willard, a theologian that you may love, you may hate, you may disagree with. If you disagree with him, he disagrees with you. That's okay. He says this, In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile and turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a compartmentalization of Christianity. 
Another theologian says this, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, He offers what we might think tired workers need the least. They need a mattress. They need a vacation. They don't need a yoke. But Jesus realized the most restful gift He can give the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. He goes on to say, Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus equips us. Jesus means that the obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop us in a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. Here's the thing for us. It, it, where the rubber meets the road on passages like this. When we begin to consider how a church functions, many of us are drawn to the idea that if you will schedule and schedule and schedule and schedule and schedule and schedule and schedule, that, that I will function as a Christian because you will keep me busy enough to satisfy God. That's nothing like the message of Jesus. First and foremost, on a practical level, or just leading off, on a practical level, that's problematic. And it gets us about two steps away from a handbell choir, and I don't want to order white gloves. Secondly, it is saying that following Jesus is about locations. It's about places that you go, a schedule that you keep. And when we say that, we are saying subconsciously, maybe even consciously, if we're being truthful, that following Jesus is in one place and my real life is in another and Jesus just told you I want it all. I want every bit of it. All of it. Why? Because 161 times the Scriptures say that the follower of Jesus is in Christ. You don't get to have a work life and a Jesus life. He gets that life too. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 24 and in verse 30 say that the Christ is for us the wisdom of God. We look and we see that others had, have given promises, but as John Piper says, all the promises of God have found their yes in Jesus. Others have offered us forgiveness, but Jesus brought, bought it for us by his death. Therefore, in him we are, we are hid all the treasures of, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To know and to love and to follow this Jesus is to own the treasure of eternal, ultimate happiness. So, if we're attempting to make our faith about how much we reduce it to scheduling our lives out and making sure we're at the right place or making sure we're part of the right thing and that we're never in places where the kingdom of God should be peeking out and prevailing and shining as light in darkness. We are missing what it means to live as a whole follower of Jesus. You're called to more. I'm called to more. It's not this itemization. It's me immersing myself in the kingdom, his way, his yoke, so that what people see is a person who belongs to his kingdom, a person who follows his way, and a person who has been given his light and easy yoke. So you get to evaluate you because I don't know you. And you get to look at your heart and consider what it means. Am I following Jesus in this way? Or am I, for whatever reason, 
settling on a wisdom that is unlike that of Jesus. Conventional, God throws lightning bolts, and I strive to be better so that I don't get hit with one. That's not Jesus. He doesn't throw lightning bolts. He actually takes the punishment of God for you. So do this with me this morning. I want you to bow your heads and think for just a moment about the hope that you've been given in Jesus. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would love for you to trust in Christ. I would love for you to believe in Him, for you to put your trust and your faith in Him, for you to love Him because He loved you first. So if you're not a believer, maybe a prayer to the, to the, in the direction of Jesus, I need you. I'm exhausted from trying to please a God who is unlike you. I keep trying to be better and better and I'll never be good enough. Jesus, I trust you for taking my sin upon yourself. So I place my trust in you and take the life that you offer in exchange. I want your light, easy yoke. I want to follow your way. I want to be part of your kingdom. So if that's you and you prayed that or something to that extent, I would love for you in just a moment when we stand to sing, for you to be bold enough and and walk to the back. You trusted me enough to to be here today. You trust the person who sat with you today enough to be in part of our worship. If you just trusted in Christ for the first time, I would love for you to meet me in the back of the room during our next song. But on the other hand, there are lots of you who are believers in Jesus. Lots of us. And I pray that God has convicted your heart in the way that he convicted mine as I spent time in this text this week of how much my living looks like conventional, earthly kingdoms. And maybe before you stand and sing, you'll just talk to the Lord in song, in prayer, as we sing. God, let me live with your kingdom in mind not forgetting the yoke that I carry that is from you. Following the way that you set. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. As you move among our people this morning, I pray that you will help us to never forget that you you don't leave us or forsake us, that you're among us, that you care for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name.